0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Pastor Yuri Brito. He's pastor of Providence Church in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, Yuri, it's great to have you on with us today.
1: Dan, great to talk to you once again.
0: This is uh, an exciting time of year. Um, just a couple of days ago, we celebrated Reformation Day, mm-hmm. and oh, what an effect the Reformation has had on the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and even more than that, it's rippled out into the world, affecting all of life, really. And um, I wasn't brought up, Yuri, uh, in the tradition of the Reformation, mm-hmm. but uh, thanks be to God, he had mercy on me, and started yeah. uh, talking with people, and and reading. And then, looking at the scripture with new eyes and it's and it 's so liberating when you see the connections and um, realize the the blessing of of God having you in his hand he 's not going to let you go and how he 's ordained it and it 's much more than that even but uh, you wrote a couple of papers about reformation myths Reformation myths. Uh, on your Cyprian commentary. So I was wondering if you could just briefly uh, cover what you wrote about in those two papers.
1: Well, thanks again for talking about this important topic. I think when a movement of such uh, grandiose proportions such as the Reformation came to pass, of course it changed the, the history pages of Western civilization, you know, in totus, uh, completely. And um, what you see almost immediately during that time, is what you see is a preponderance of material criticizing the Reformation for being divisive, for being anti-ecclesiastical, for being anarchistic. And the myths continue, and they have built even to this day, where those who are not aware of the history of the Reformation continue to utter those myths, not only in the Roman Catholic Church, but in other traditions, evangelical traditions. Now, the irony of all of this, of course, Dan, is that for an evangelical to criticize the Reformation, they have to realize that the, the luxury of criticizing the Reformation is a luxury granted by the Reformation. <laughs> and so the Reformation is the one who gave us the, the, the ability, the Christian, the ability to, to criticize, to consider whether the word of the clergy is truly the word of God, and to look at the Scriptures, as the Bereans did. And so uh, criticism is one thing, and I think we should be open to criticism, but I think when you formulate criticism on the basis of uh, ahistorical um, presuppositions, and then you enter some dangerous territory.
0: That's right. We look back um, with thankfulness to the ancient church, uh, we don't want to be overly critical of her, because that's really our roots, mm-hmm. and uh, yet if there's mistakes that are made, and even in our own day as mistakes are made, we want to allow for correction, and so it's, it's very much a heart attitude that's involved in all this as well.
1: That's exactly right, um, I think that's the, and I think that's the, the foundation of what Reformational theology is. It's a continual pursuit of truth. And where there is error, as the Confession says, um, that churches and popes will err uh, and councils will err, our authority lies solely on the Word of God. And so the Reformation is not, uh, let's say, a movement that has settled every minutia in the days of Luther and Calvin. The Reformation is an ongoing movement where we are continuing the trajectory of our forefathers, but also gaining new insights. And we have gained a tremendous amount of insights these last 400 years, whether through uh, the pen of Bootser or Zwingli or the Puritans or the great uh, Herman Bovink or Abraham Kuyper and, and others. So we, the church, the Reformation tradition is not settled or it, there's not an um, RIP uh, monument for the Reformation, <laughs> the 16th century. The Reformation is a, a, a continual trajectory towards truth, and that truth is found in the Bible. But our interpretation will uh, will I- uh, improve as time goes by, not because of the discoveries of man, and not because discovery of new divine revelation, but because we are uh, we are fallible man, and we are continually learning, and because also, Dan, the Bible is such a remarkable book, which allows the human mind to never be truly satisfied as we read through it. Mm,
0: Yeah. Now, uh, in your papers, you write about these myths. Uh You chose four to write about. The first one you started writing about is, um, is the myth that the Reformers did not care about the outward unity of the Church. Can you address that briefly?
1: I think that is one of the greatest concerns that people have had of the Reformation over the years is that people would say, look, Luther was perhaps right to criticize the corruption of the 16th century church, but the way he went about it was a dangerous way, which led to this formation of, and they will say, you know, 30,000 denominations. And there's some good, um, things to consider there. But the one thing to consider also is that historically Luther did not mean to destroy the unity of the church when he posted the 95 theses. Luther posted those theses as a way to begin a conversation within the church Mm -hmm. about uh, the nature of indulgences and other issues. And so Luther's concern was brought up in a way that an academic Augustinian monk would do which is to propose certain issues to the church for conversation. Of course, God had other plans. And so, but the the natural outworking of this thought is that Luther was therefore divisive. But uh, Luther began this the Reformation really as a conversation. And the concern that stemmed from that was that because of the Reformation divided, therefore the initial purpose of the Reformation is void. But that's not the case. Even though there are, various thousands of denominations in our country today, Luther was, even in, in the 16th century, deeply concerned that these denominations would not oppose the heart of his reformational proposal, which was the authority of the Bible, the centrality of Jesus, the centrality of of faith alone and grace alone. And so uh, Luther would be critical of any denomination today that opposed those central features, but he wouldn't be critical of diversity of thinking and interpretational forms. Um, one of his last words to Philip Melanchthon in the 16th century was that his greatest fear would that be many harsh and terrible sects would arise, and so uh, that was the fear that came to pass, uh, mainly because the Anabaptists took the liberty they now had uh, outside of the authority of the Church of the day and began to espouse what we would call anti-Trinitarian theology. And so Luther would criticize that today were he alive. He would also criticize denominations that would oppose the centrality of the Bible. He would would certainly criticize mainline denominations today. But Luther, I think, wouldn't be as opposed, as people would say, to a variety of denominations in our day, because what he was concerned about was the centrality of the Word of God and the centrality of Jesus.
0: Amen. Amen. Now, uh, the second myth that you write about is that related to the priesthood of all believers and how that is often misunderstood as giving us uh, extraordinary license to interpret the Bible on our own, thus setting ourselves, I'm using my own words here, setting ourselves up as our own little pope. Can you uh, talk to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's an important phrase because it's used a lot, very flippantly and trivially, I would say. But the priesthood of all believers for Luther was not this idea that now that we've gotten rid of the Pope, we can be our own individual Popes. And many have taken that, uh, exactly that, um, that perspective, and as a result, they have come with um, really obscene versions of what the Christian faith ought to be, even in Luther's day and 17th, 18th century, 19th century, 20th, even in our day today. But for Luther, the priesthood of the believers uh, was a way of saying that we are together in the process of understanding who God is. It was not a call to isolation or to uh, theological anarchism. For Luther, the priesthood of the believers meant that all of us had access to the heavenly throne of grace, and that we could all act as priests, not in, in isolation, but that we could act as priests to one another. And so the process of interpreting the Bible, for example, was a process that could not be done in isolation. Anyone can read the Bible alone, but when someone claims their individual interpretation as an authoritative interpretation, they're misusing what the priesthood of all believers does. And, of course, we have seen the results of that, even in our day with um, insane cults and sects that have taken matters in their own hands. But that's the problem when we find... A central figure that receives this kind of inordinate amount of authority placed on them and now they see that their interpretation cannot be disregarded their interpretation has to be taken at face value because of their authority and so to use that as a justification for um, the priesthood of all believers is a false idea for Luther Um, He even quoted, which is typical of Luther, the way his phraseology, uh, he said, essentially, if we read the Bible in our own way, we will just go to hell our own way. And so (laughs) Luther was deeply concerned that isolating our lives and our interpretation would actually be the way in which many would abandon the faith. And so for Luther, the priesthood of all believers was a call for believers to participate together in the process of interpretation, and so that would be where Luther would strongly advocate uh, Bible studies. He would advocate discussions on the morning sermon. He would advocate to get together to to pray and to read out loud. These kinds of things. I think it's much more in line with the priesthood of all believers than the the, uh, the typical individualistic interpretation of that famous phrase.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's helpful. Uh, Going on, uh, today we're talking with Pastor Yuri Brito of Providence Church, Pensacola, Florida. Um, He wrote an article about the myths related to the Reformation. He chose four particular ones. Going on to the third one, the third myth is that the Reformers invented the idea of predestination. And I always hesitate mentioning predestination because it's been so utterly misrepresented. Mm. And for me, when I came to learn more about the Reformation, it was was one of the most precious, calming, wonderful truths. And, And I think that's what you bring out in your article, and that's how Calvin saw it, that there was great comfort in it. Can you explain this third myth?
1: Absolutely. It's um, usually been said that predestination is a, a philosophical argument from Calvinists that is not in the Bible. But of course, any quick reading of the scriptures, we don't have to go to Romans 9, but even Ephesians 1, where the Bible says that in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. These are very clear biblical Doctrines that the reformers never shied away from, but I think the perception is that that's all the reformers talked about because they invented such a doctrine. Therefore, they needed to focus more on that. But you know, any reading of the Institutes of Calvin, which is one of the greatest masterpieces of civilization, will indicate that Calvin, as the uh, the patron saint of the Reformation, so to speak, was not only interested in predestination. Calvin, of course, was very interested in the idea that the grace of God is sufficient for sinners. Only the grace of God can choose and elect sinners. But Calvin had a bunch of other issues he tackled in his his institutes and his commentaries. And um, it's also important to realize that uh, predestination, as you mentioned, Dan, for Calvin was not some ethereal and abstract idea. Uh, For Calvin, for example, predestination was precisely a doctrine of comfort and humility I mean, after all, who can be proud knowing that the only thing they contributed to their salvation was their sin, which made it necessary? No one can be proud of that fact. And so for Calvin, the predestinating power of God was, for him, a humbling and comforting thought, knowing that there was nothing he contributed, and knowing that everything that he is, everything that he will be, And everything that he does is out of the sheer grace of God. And so predestination, as opposed to the way it's caricatured in our day as some kind of philosophical idea or or some kind of made-up concept, is actually the way that the Bible comforts the people of God. And I think that's um, something that the Reformers um, did not invent, but some of the Reformers echoed, uh, in terms of the biblical language, and they wanted to make that very explicit in their theology.
0: Yeah, and it makes the words of Jesus uh, so much more easier to understand uh, when he talks about in John 6 that he says, no, yes. one can, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Or when he later says, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father and uh coupled with this very closely is this idea that that um the people that the lord brings will come to him and so it takes the pressure off in witnessing um we can have great confidence that that people are going to come to the lord because it's the lord that opens their eyes giving them the gift of faith, and then they willingly, lovingly choose Jesus on their own, but all the time God is in back of this, uh, ordering it, uh, ordaining it, and it's just, uh, oh, it's a blessed truth.
1: It really is, and the beauty of evangelism in the Reformation is that we not only, we believe firmly that the Word of God does not return void, which means we receive utter confidence from the Word of God itself, that when we preach, God is operating through that spoken Word, and uh, that gives us the gospel confidence we need to proclaim the gospel to, to the world.
0: And have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm not sure I'm chosen, I'm not, you know, but, you know, if you have this concern over your spiritual status before the Lord, you can be quite sure that the Lord is dealing with your heart and drawing right. you to himself. And, and then you can rest in the fact that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And so uh, I wish we could talk more about this third myth, but we got we're running out of time. Let's go on to this uh, fourth myth that uh, when the Reformers broke from Rome... Uh, they broke free from liturgical worship. Oh my, this is a very interesting myth that you've wandered into here. Uh, can you describe <laughs> that a little bit more for us?
1: Yes. Uh, I've often said to my congregation, Dan, that uh, the historical knowledge of most evangelicals goes back to the day Billy Graham was born. <laughs> um, I, I think, uh, by and large, our Like I say, our tradition, evangelical tradition, which has emphasized the gospel proclamation, has a very poor view of history. It's not something that's deeply considered. And um, it's crucial because history has taught us that when we stray from particular ways of worship, the end result is almost always the detriment and the decay of the local body of the church. And so the general belief in our day is that breaking from Rome necessarily means breaking from any fixed form of worship. Therefore, we need to allow, and you could even hear this language, allow the Spirit to work. And as we know, of course, the Spirit, they'd say, is spontaneous, and He does, operates operates, um, at any moment, and therefore we should be spontaneous like the Spirit. But it's interesting, of course, this is a side note, but the Spirit of God in the Bible operates in a very specific way. Uh, The Spirit saves whom he chooses, but the the appearance and the work of the Spirit in the Bible is actually uh, fairly formal, I would say. Um, And so even on Pentecost, when the Spirit descends upon the people of God, um, the response is a relatively organized response. Um, The people are hearing the gospel in their own tongue. The people are reacting in a fairly organized way. 3,000 people are baptized. And so the appearance of the Spirit does not equal the spontaneous reaction of the people of God. The Spirit has a particular way of functioning. And so the irony, again, uh, some of these myths here really brings out a, a very unique uh, sort of irony in modern evangelical worship, is because evangelicals who claim to be no, I mean, they, they are very concerned. Uh, to make clear that they are not Romans in any way, not Roman Catholic in any way. There's a Romophobia that exists. And their reaction to that is not to say, huh, I wonder what the Bible says about uh, liturgy, about the way that people of God are called to worship. Their reaction is, well, if Rome did it, let's do the exact opposite. Right. And we need to be cautious because uh, the Roman Church, even in the 16th century, uh, believed and affirmed the triune God. So the evangelicals now say, well, if Rome affirmed the triune God, we ought to, um, you know, oppose the historic uh, creeds of the church. Yeah. We need to be careful. And I think the same thing happens in evangelical worship, where uh, spontaneous and entertainment-driven worship is just, is essentially the heart of uh, the evangelical ethos today on Sunday morning. But the Reformation believed very firmly that there were certain things that happened in the church of the day that were wrong. For instance, um, the uh, inability of the people to have the Word of God in their possession, for instance, the passivity of the people in worship on Sunday morning, where the clergy who were these you know professional elites did all the work. The reformers believe that the people were to be engaged in the work of worship. The reformers believe that the people ought to have the Word of God. The reformers believe uh, that the clergy should give both word, bread, and wine to the people, not only one of those elements. And so for the Reformation, they believed that worship was still central, but Rome, but that the church of the day had abused and taken worship to a place that was magical, as opposed to modeled by the patterns of the sacred scriptures. And so the Reformers' concern, again, was that we would be faithful to the authority of the Bible and how the Bible speaks of that. And the patterns we see in the Bible, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well, is that there are certain, uh, a certain pattern and order to the worship of God's people on Sunday morning. That we can't simply show up and invent things or create things. We're not called to be innovative on Sunday morning We're called to be worshipers on Sunday morning. And so one of the ways that has been expressed in our day is that there is very little knowledge of what true worship looks like or what a healthy pattern of worship looks like. So um, in some ways, evangelicals have forsaken Rome, but at the same time embraced some of the Romanisms of the 16th century. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is, for example if you walk into a typical evangelical church, you're going to see a praise band. And what you're going to see as a man, for instance, you're going to see that the vast majority of singing happens up on the platform. And if you look around, and this is is not just a stereotype. I've experienced this personally. If you look around, you'll see very few people singing loudly and cheerfully with the praise band. And that's because... The praise band carries such an authoritative role in the service, first of all, because of the volume, and secondly, because of their gifts, that the people are relatively restrained in worship on Sunday morning. Well, wouldn't you know that that's exactly how the church of the 16th century that Luther criticized also functioned? That the choir did all the singing, the people sat there passively, the clergy did all the work, the people sat there passively, and Calvin and Luther said, no, this can't be. The people In fact, the word liturgy means the work of the people. Luther and Calvin believed the people ought to be engaged. The people ought to be engaged in this service. And a healthy form of worship means a conversation between God and his people, where the the clergy speaks and the people respond. The clergy speak and the people respond, where the people sing together, so that there's a participation of the people in worship. And uh, the Reformation made that very clear, which was a vast contrast with Rome, and my fear, Dan, is that modern evangelicals, though they want to distance themselves so much from Rome, in many ways they act just like her, and um, I think that 's detrimental to the um, to the Protestant faith.
0: yeah, these are all very helpful points, and uh, we 've run out of time i I would like to pursue a further point with you, uh, maybe in another um, uh, interview. Today, we're talking with Pastor Yuri Brito, and he pastors Providence Church in Pensacola, Florida. And um, just finally, if someone wants to look you up online, uh, Pastor Brito, where could they go to learn more?
1: They can go to uribrito.com. That's U R I B R I T O.com. They can look me up on Facebook just by uh, searching my name. I have a fairly unique name. My first name is uh, Hebrew and Greek, so there, there are no other Uriezo, and so URI is short, but at, uh, U-R-I-E-S-O-U will lead you pretty quickly to my name on Facebook, and that's where I put a lot of my thoughts on a more um, sort of formal basis so that for popular consumption um, on Facebook. But again, com is another great source to go to hear my thoughts and what I'm working through these days.
0: Yes. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I'm on your mailing list, I guess. And sometimes it comes across, and I'll go check out the, the latest posting, and it's very thoughtfully done. Yuri Brito, dear brother in the Lord, thank you for joining us today.
1: Dan, always a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.